Welcome film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, and let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We've talked about on previous episodes about what defines someone as a filmmaker, and the consensus is there really is no definition. If you want to define yourself as a filmmaker, there's no one or nothing stopping you. There's no filmmaker police. Today, we want to examine if the same can be said about being an artist. You know, what is it that truly makes someone an artist? Uh, We may not be able to answer those questions today, but we're going to dive into it with our special guest who I, and I think anyone that comes across his work, would call an artist. Pleased to welcome to the show, Claudio Marcotulli. Claudio, welcome. Thank you for having me and it's a pleasure to be here in your show. Great. We're happy to have you. So, Claudia, I refer to you as an artist uh, for two reasons, really. One, it's kind of like what they once said about pornography. May not be able to define it, but I'll know it when I see it. The other reason is you've done so many things. I don't think I could just list them all and do you justice. And it would take seven hours for the show to list all that. So... You've worked in film, you've worked in physical art, you've worked in multimedia art, you've worked in television, almost every kind of visual medium I believe you've you've touched. And I want you to take us back to the beginning because you started in a, trained in a completely different field. Recall you started in aeronautical engineering. How did you go from aeronautical engineering to art and film? So I went to aeronautical engineering school and, and there is everything related to aviation is called Ember Riddle and up in Daytona Beach. And in those days my passion was flying and it still is in a way. But it was, you know, I dream all the time about being in the clouds and flying from one point to another one and everything related to flying. And and especially I would design my own airplanes, uh, remote control airplanes, and then test them and see the characteristics of the flight. And um, that was uh, something that I had very, I hold it very uh, dearly in my heart. There was a moment where I start painting oil paintings. Somebody gave me a set of oil paintings and I decided to start using the oil in the canvas. And I love it. I really did. And it was at that moment that... um, that I invest myself in the craft. I was still a student, an aerospace engineering student, but I was devoting more time, I think, to the art than to actually studying engineering. So that's when I decide, you know what, I'm going to go for something different. Would you say you were artistic as a child growing up? Build things with my hands all the time. Um, I could you know, especially airplanes. One thing that I did a lot is drawing on the. No, but there's a there's a sketching. Word for that. No, uh, when you are in in the clouds, in sketching in uh, paper. So I used to do drawings on in class, and as I was watching the professor saying and explaining, you know, chemistry, physics, whatever it was. And I still keep some of those drawings, especially, I, I don't know why, but I, I did a lot of trees. 
And even today in my films, you can see the element of a tree being something really, really important. Interesting. So when you started doing the oil paintings, did you go to any classes? Did you have a mentor or were you just self-trained, just kind of taught yourself? Self-trained. And actually YouTube wasn't something available at the time that I remember. Maybe it was the beginning of uh, YouTube. Uh, we're talking in 1992, about there. It's the early days, just back in the AOL and Prodigy days to get on the internet, or or as they referred to back then, the, the World Wide Web. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Way back. <laughs> Some of us remember that. Um, so then, you know, you started, started with oil paintings. How did that eventually evolve into film? Well, after I quit, basically, aerospace engineering, um, about two years in the career, I went back to Venezuela, my uh, native country. And I had a, a, like a studio in my father's basement. And I would devote myself completely to the craft of painting. And I immersed myself with hours and hours and hours. My friends would come and visit me and see what I was doing. I actually have a, a good friend of mine that would come to the studio and watch me painting. And he confessed later on that he decided to go into the arts, maybe inspired by those paintings that uh, they start. And he's nowadays a big, big uh, artist. And then uh, you started to come back to a different school in the United States, this little town in Massachusetts. Yep. I went to Emerson College. And the reason was, I really feel that I wanted my paintings to move because there were a story in the frame. I, well, I think almost every, every painting has a story, but I wanted, I want those stories to have motion, a beginning and an ending, you know, a start. And I, I, I always was attracted to cameras. My father gave me a better movie camera when I was uh, around eight years old and, you know, record a lot of uh, stuff with the camera. And when I went to Emerson, I, I saw that my dream was becoming a reality. Yeah, uh, this will be the second episode in a row, I think, that I referenced Spinal Tap. There's a line in Spinal Tap where uh, they cancel the show in Boston, and our manager's like, oh, don't worry, Boston's not a big college town at all. I think it's like the most colleges per within a 20-mile radius of anywhere in the U.S. And I actually looked at Emerson when I came out of, out of high school. I remember going up to Emerson. I, I was an actor back then. We go, and it's a group interview. There's probably like 10, 12 other students were sitting there with the parents asking questions and one kid raises his hand and he goes, do I have to submit all my screenplays with my application? Because one is kind of be an option that I can't talk about. That was when I looked to both my parents. I'm like, yeah, I'm in way over my head here. This is too much for me. But uh, I regrettably wish that I had just at least gone through the process. Uh, it's a great school. Um, any notable classmates from Emerson? You know, a lot of TV personalities have gone through there yeah personalities well not really somebody that comes to mind at the moment but yeah jay lane uh, went to emerson college yeah a lot of a lot of the boston comedy core you know i think dennis leary stephen wright to emerson but that was probably back in the early 80s coming from venezuela was different you know you'd already been in daytona except for a while was going to boston you know a, a bit of a culture shock did you have trouble adapting actually it was easier 
for me, yo, big time because it's a very international city and you can find not only food from everywhere, but the arts, it's, you know, it's full of different things that you could do. You can go to hear the, listen to the orchestra, the symphony, go to the museums, go to see movies. I mean, all sort of different artistic things that uh, Daytona Beach couldn't provide. Do you remember what the film industry was like? How was up there film and television? Was there a lot of opportunity up there at that time? Boston is the crib of documentary filmmaking. Really? Yes. Okay. And as a matter of fact, I have a very dear friend of mine who actually, I took a class uh, with her, Susan Steinberg Wool, and she she's part of a school of Cinema Verite. And the very first people that would go and film on celluloid and document something, people from MIT actually were the first uh, Cinema Verite school. And yeah, I, I made a good relationship with Susan, I still talk to her on a monthly basis. That's great. Yeah, we've talked a lot on the show about you know the film industry in general and different states and how Florida you know is lacking in state support. But Massachusetts actually over the last couple of years has actually made a really big investment. They've upped their incentives. They just built a uh, I think a sixty thousand square foot studio right next to Foxborough Stadium there. So they're taking advantage. I remember my parents. Um, lived in Plymouth right off of Cape Cod, you know, a few years back from about 2007, you know, they were there for 10 years and there was a big push. There's supposed to be this uh, Plymouth Rock Studios, you know, Hollywood East, and it uh, it never came to fruition. And that was around the same time that uh, Atlanta started started growing, you know, as as a film industry hub. So it's, so it's interesting that you say that about the documentaries up there. I think people think, you know, when they think of film and TV, you know, LA, New York, obviously Atlanta's come in, but Boston is really probably bigger than people realize. When it was in Boston, a friend of my brother started doing a, a feature film and he asked me to be part of it. And I think in a way, it was also good that I was in Emerson at that time because he knew that I could pull some people to work in the film. And plus being a friend of my brother, it was all in the family. And I work in a, in a film called The Sleepwalker. And that was my first film that I work as a crew uh, member. I did production manager for it. Big job. Yeah. I imagine, you know, I was in my teens or my early 20s, maybe. And did you get into sports up there? Sports. Did you get into following the sports teams? Very little. I, I haven't been really uh, attached to sports. Hey, I've said on the podcast a couple of times that my wife and I consider ourselves to be a mixed marriage because she was in the Army. I was in the Marine Corps. My brother and sister are both in mixed marriages because we're from New York, big New York Yankees fans, they married people from Boston that are both big Boston Red Sox fans. Mm -hmm. So big family rivalries in my family, but it, it's it's a great town. The stadium was very close from where I, I live. It was in Huntington Avenue next to the Museum of Arts. Uh, Boston Fine Arts Museum, I think yeah. it is. Yep. Boston Fine Arts okay. Museum. So you're off, is that off Lonsdale Street? Lonsdale? Is that the street goes behind the stadium? It's very close. Huntington Avenue. If if um, if I'm going to Alston, I will make a ride and the stadium was there. Yep. All comes back to you, doesn't it? Oh, Jamaica Plains. Sorry. Jamaica Plains. Yep. Um, you've also mentioned, you know, trees, you know, always are part of, of everything you do. You are inspired, you know, by planes and, and the thoughts of flight. What other inspirations and influences would you say were have, have been a part of your life? I think I grew up with um, my grandfather was involved in the industry 
and he actually got to be in a very high position. Uh, he worked for Universal Pictures and was the general manager in Europe of the company. And then later on, he became vice president of the company. And I was very inspired by him because he would take me and my brother to watch movies every time I, you know, he could. By the time that I was going to movies with him, he actually owned a couple of theaters and everybody knew him. So he would go to the, to the theaters in the different areas in Panama and um, they would open the doors for him, you know. Oh, wow. That, that's amazing. I think you just made a lot of our listeners jealous to, to be able to do that. I mean, I mean Pete, like, like me, it's like, yeah, I, I went to the movies. I had to pay to go, and it was just a regular dinky, dinky movie theater. Uh, you mentioned Europe. Did you spend time living in Europe? Mm, no. I, my father is from Italy, Rome, and my mother is from Panama, but she spent a lot of time in Italy since she was a teenager. And as a matter of fact, that's how she met my father, because... At the time, my grandfather, Orlando Calvo, was um, general manager of Universal Pictures, and he had to travel to Italy to work there. And so that's actually how the whole thing started. I wouldn't be here if, if it wouldn't be for a film. Claudio, you, you mentioned your grandfather. You obviously had a very close relationship with him, and I could just imagine he must have shared some wild stories with you. Oh, yes. It's, it's, well, he we would watch Alfred Hitchcock movies together, and that he would rent in a video rental with a VHS tape, and he would say this is Alfred Hitchcock and I would get he was a dear friend of mine and couldn't believe it but because to me now I was interested in airplanes and flying I was not very interested in film though I got the passion from him about film but it I never put it like as a something that I would do professionally and yeah he has stories he met uh, the beautiful Sophia Loren and Marlon Brandon and especially for me Federico Felipe Fellini is a big one. My, when my grandmother told me, no, Federico Fellini used to have coffee with my grandfather all the time in Italy, in Rome. And I was like, no way. That's not true. Well, it's true. I have pictures. <laughs> um, so do you still have family down in, in Panama? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, my mother spent most of the time in, in Panama. Lately, she has actually stayed in Weston here, but uh, I have uncles and I have cousins. Okay. Is there a lively art and film? I wouldn't say industry, but at least, you know. There is. Believe interest. it or not, there is. There, I have been um, kind of following a little bit the scene and lately. Lately, it has actually, um, I think there has been an improvement. There is movies that, even Hollywood movies that go there to film because of the, you know, having the jungle, the environment. I have a number of friends who have said, like, if they were going to move into, like, that central or south, like, Panama is where they'd want to go just because it's beautiful, very friendly. Um, they've probably used, Hollywood has probably used it as a substitute for Florida on occasion. So you went to Boston, you're at Emerson, you know, then how did, how did you end up back down in Florida? Well. Um, my brother was living here and 
I came to visit him after I spent a couple months in Hollywood. And I, I was very interested in aerial cinematography. In those days, there were not drones. And so what I actually used to use is a remote control helicopter with a camera. And that was the way to do close range aerial cinematography. And I worked for a company called Flying Cam, very briefly. And then I moved from LA to Florida. Okay, I thought you were going to say, you know, a couple of Boston winters and that was that was it for you. <laughs> and that, it's pretty hellish. Well, like I said, it, it, it's a fascinating background. You've done a lot. You're still doing a lot. We are going to talk more about that and really get into uh, the things you're working on today and what you're doing. Uh, but first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I'm joined today by Claudio Marcatulli. So Claudio, in addition to being a practicing, actual working artist and filmmaker, uh, you're an educator. You've you've taught film production, you've taught editing, you've taught screenwriting. Let's talk about those experiences. I mean, it must, must be a little bit of a um, circular relationship between art and teaching do they does your art inform your teaching does your teaching inform your art that is a good question i think there is a feedback between the two of them you know when i engage in creating an um an object and a sculpture i invest time in the developing of an idea i think the students will benefit from those ideas that uh, are more mature after the process of creating. When you teach film production, um, you know, obviously there's a filmmaking podcast, there's different levels of, of film production that you go through in film school. There's like the introduction, like there's how you turn on a camera, take a shot to big. What Usually what level do you teach at complexity-wise, I think is, is the right question. Uh-huh. Uh, well, in Miami Dade College, where I taught um, film. I actually did teach uh, film production one, film production two, and film production three. Uh, in film production one, is more about the use of camera, you know, learning to use the camera. And and, uh, and that was uh, one of my favorite classes because I adore cameras, film cameras. And then in film two, it progresses more into, uh, you know, starting to work with actors, but also incorporating light and the sound element. It's more um, vivid. And then in film three, it's using that experience from film one and film two, but, you know, starting to integrate all the elements into a, a short film that the students create. And you've you've taught kind of the three stages of production. You've taught pre-production, you know, screenwriting, production, and then editing. Did you encourage students to say, for example, you know, write something in your screenwriting, take it, make that film in your production classes, then edit it? Or do you want them to kind of explore different, different things in each class? Screenwriting is a very hard class to teach. I think it's hard to explain, I mean, we cannot explain the the basics, elements of uh, storytelling, and there is many books about it. The Act One, Act Two, Act Three, Plot Point One, Plot Point Two. These kind of uh, things that are related to the structure. But what is I think is more important is to develop a good idea. And what is that idea? Um, it comes from observing the daily life. It's actually 
I think a lot like um, meditation, but it's not a meditation. It's like being aware of the present and noticing things that happen on a daily basis. So, for instance, you read a news and, oh, wow, I can't believe that. What happened? And so that could be a, an igniter for an entire movie. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I've, I've told people, the few people that have come to me for advice, like, first, you know, write what you know. Everybody has stories. Everybody has experiences. And even before you worry about the structure, I call it just do a brain dump. You know, just write everything down, organize, you know, there's to get technical, like divergent and convergent thinking where you just throw everything you can think of on a wall and then you just start kind of dialing down. Okay, we can combine this, do this. Were there, when you were teaching screenwriting, were there specific genres that you saw students would gravitate to more and ones that they avoided that you wanted to see more of? Well... That's a good question. Action was probably the genre that they explore the most. I don't know. I am very existential in the sense that I love things related to life and death. And why are we here in this world? And questions that are not necessarily have an answer, but are good to ask. And I saw that some students would, would get dig that, you know, and they would go for it. And sometimes they would do. I think it happens with any art that a teacher is teaching something, then they grab that and take it further. Have you ever taught art? Like besides, in, you know, on the filmmaking side, have you ever taught how to do the art that you do to anyone? Besides filmmaking, um, I have people that help me build uh, sculptures. And for doing that, uh, they would learn the craft. And so I have relationships that I have had one-to-one. -one. And, you know, we've talked a lot about educating filmmakers and similar to what defines a filmmaker, what defines an artist, there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. There's film school, there's um, workshops, there's types of things that um, previous guest LaRue does where he's teaching it as part of a STEM STEM program, teaches to younger, younger filmmakers. So if you were going to give advice to an aspiring filmmaker out there, say someone in in high school, um, what would that be? Would you encourage them to go to film school? Would you encourage them to go do something else, but like make your own films on the side? It's always difficult. I think you can you can kind of see as a professor, I can see those students that, that are really passionate or I think that they would go, follow that step of becoming a filmmaker and I definitely encourage that. Some other ones needs to more exploration to decide and I would ask them to go out and film. The best way to learn is to do it. Go out, film, 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 make mistakes, learn from them, and, and that's going to teach you a lot. We've also talked about just the idea of content, you know, aside from films and TV, just how much content is out there, whether it be commercials, whether it be web content, whether it be TikTok, Instagram videos. Do you think film schools should embrace that more, that they should get away, you know, the focus usually solely on like narrative short films? to make in film school. Um, speaking from experience, I know it's a lot harder for me to make a 30 second video than it is to make a 10 minute short. Do you think like they should start integrating more of that into curriculums? Maybe as an elective class, for sure. Why am I saying this? Because if you focus on the traditional narrative and you develop a, a strong basis for it, you can translate that later into anything, I believe. 
I think like once you become a filmmaker in the sense of knowledgeable filmmaker, somebody with certain knowledge of it, um, then you can apply that to TikTok, Facebook videos, which by the way, I, I do a lot. I, I used to do a lot. I haven't done it in a while, but I have one that is going to be launched soon. Now, when you first started teaching, were you still using film? Or was it all digital? No, we. I had the fortune of teaching celluloid, and I love the smell of it. So you've you've seen the the transition from celluloid to digital. Um, what's next? Do you think? Mm, it, one can only imagine. Um, I don't know. I I sometimes get a feeling that what we are doing as filmmakers and creators of machines. We're sort of going into the time traveling machine, you know? I mean, believe it or not, it's, film is the closest thing to a time travel machine. Why? Because you can see, you know, if you see a video of you 20 years ago, boy, it's like takes you back. You know, physically it doesn't, but it does it mentally. And, you know, and mentally it's very powerful. If you can bring the mind into the past, like for instance, Jurassic Park, you know, it, it takes you back to the dinosaurs and it does a really good job. Um, it's a time traveling machine. So what is next? I don't know, but I would love to go back in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I know, I know cur current curriculums, especially with editing, uh, the editing kind of goes hand in hand with like After Effects and doing things in post. Um, are they going to start teaching students, you know, just make this short on a green screen? Like everything, you know, there's so much CGI, so much effects going on that I think independent filmmakers, low, no budget filmmakers kind of have a little bit of an advantage that they don't have the ability to do all that post work. But is that type of approach, like a couple actors, green screen, you could do anything going to start making its way into film schools? You know that green screen, I wasn't really uh, taught much of green screen. Uh, when I did my master's degree, I use a green screen room that uh, Miami International University of Art and Design had. But today, we have that element. I think it should be taught. And especially, they, I don't know how to say it, but I believe, like, for instance, if there is a student that wants to do a scene that is CGI, most professors, I think, or at least as my experience as a student, would go against it. You know, like, no, 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 don't go, don't do that. But maybe it's a little thing that they want to do. Like, you know, a bird goes into the shoulder of the person. How do you do that? Unless you have a trained bird, you can do it in CGI. So um, I would say if you have the resources or if the school can provide this, those resources, Go, go for it. That may end up being actually the passion of the person that is learning that little detail. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times happen. I have, you know, I met people that uh, were my students and they want, you know, you could tell that they love a specific thing and they end up being professionals in that field. Interesting. And, and you touched on the narrative, the story, whether it's a 30 second, a 10 minute um, you also mentioned it, like each of your art pieces tell a story. So how does, say, a narrative story, those of us that are in film, you know, we communicate with words and images. How do you translate that into art, if you could even put that into words? How do you tell stories with your art? Wow. Well, it's kind of, now that you're saying this, I mentioned that I first wanted the paintings to move. Nowadays, I'm actually going in reverse. 
I want the, the pieces of art to go back to a solid state. And my pieces, uses, many of them uses light. Light is an element that is used highly in cinematography, of course. And in the sculptures, they become cinematic. And I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's as much a, uh, it's a process. And, and again, so, you know, I mentioned the three stages, you know, production, pre-production, production, post. Do you approach art like the same way? You know, you get an idea, you know, and I'm sure you just, do you just start creating it? Do you sketch it first? Like what's your, uh, you know, how does that process work? I've been fortunate that I don't work full time creating ideas because it would be really hard. Um, I find it that ideas, a lot of them come in dreams. I dream and I remember my dreams because I write them down. And I, uh, the process of writing them down is helping to actually remember the next dream. It's, I don't know how it works, but it works. So, and, and I am uh, very inclined to the surrealism. So dreams is the best, you know, for that. But um, not always I get ideas. And when I get a good idea, I hold it and write it down. You know, it happened to me that I had great ideas that I consider great ideas and I forgot them. I didn't write it down. And I still have one that I'm searching for that I recall that it was a really good idea. And I, I lost it because I didn't write it down. Listeners, if you have a good idea, write it down. Keep it in, in a handy place. You don't know when you're going to use it. And, t and today it's easy. You can do it right on your phone. That's right. You know, I remember, you know, there was a time when I carried a little notepad around. I still have it that I carry when I remember. And uh, I think going back to what we opened the episode with, like, trying to define what is an artist. I think an artist is someone that you said you're not always creating, but you are in, in a way like creative minds are always looking for something. I mean, I know for me, I'll hear a song on the radio and be like, wow, that song would make an interesting scene. Don't have the rest of a movie, but just like these little things that like kind of tick off in your brain. But I, I don't have a boss telling me produce, produce, produce ideas because I can, I can come up with good content like that. Yeah. And you're right. I being, I always try to think of things that I can put my hands into and create some art. But um, I think the, the good artists are the ones that learns the tool to catch ideas. It's like you are fishing for ideas. And if you know the technique and you use a good bait, you get one. Claudio, that's an interesting analogy you brought up with the fishing. You know, you mentioned put one line in with good bait and get a good idea. I think a lot of people, myself included, take the opposite approach where uh, I'm going to put a hundred lines in the water with a hundred pieces of bait and hope hope to catch one idea on that. You mentioned a dream journal and I, I wish I had a dollar for every time a professor or someone has told me to keep a dream journal. Is that something you tell your students to do or encourage them? And, you know, it sounds like that's been a pretty big influence or part, part of your creative process. I... Used to do it a lot, and I would ask them. Lately, I am teaching a younger crowd because I'm teaching an after class uh, with Florida Film Institute. And the students, sometimes I say, do you remember your dreams? I don't know why. I mean, it shouldn't be anything related to the age. But I, I, get, a, I get a few negatives. Negatives like, uh, like they don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, okay. 
all right, no problem. <laughs> very personal. It, you know? it is. But film is very personal. When you're making a film, you know, it's cool that I learned from the Cinema Verite style. You go all the way inside you and put it on the table. Um, you know, you mentioned people are afraid to share, you know, their personal stories, but um, definitely in the creative industry, whether it's writing, producing, especially acting, um, you have to allow yourself to be a little more, you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. I think, I think if you keep that inside, it really prohibits people from probably reaching their potential. Tell you what, we're going to take a quick break and we will come right back to that idea. And I do want to dig a little deeper into your, uh, your filmmaking process, how you approach films. So we'll be right back. But before that, we would like to thank two of our partners that helped make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who's been a mainstay of the film industry since 1968, providing equipment, support, and training. And ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment. This is Howard Brand. You're listening to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. We are back with artist and filmmaker Claudio Marcatulli. So we've talked about quite a lot already. We talked about your art. We talked about, uh, you know, educating, being a professor. I want to bring it back to filmmaking. You do a different type of filmmaking. You do a lot of surreal, a lot of, um, you know, I, I think people call it art house um, type type of films. What does that process look like? I mean, I know for like traditional narrative, you know, write, shoot and that, but do you take a different approach when you make these films? I guess in the short answer is I was trained academically to use the tools that any filmmaker who goes to a university would get. Um, so I apply them and I think they are wonderful, but I'm very open to new tools. Um, I constantly do workshops, meaning I go to workshops to learn, especially when they are uh, in the realm of experimental way of doing things and uh so that's what i do <laughs> how <laughs> you know when i look at surrealism or that type of stuff i think like how can that be taught i mean that seems to me that's something that people either have an innate ability to think like or an, an innate ability to create like how do you teach surrealism how do you teach you know kind of avant-garde approaches to, to filmmaking their way i think by exposing the, the the students to a lot of films and, and analyzing them or experiencing them more perhaps than analyzing them but analyzing is also a good thing i mentioned before that um writing your dreams Dreams are, by its own nature, surreal. But I think observing a lot of content, that's what gives you... Because it's like, it's an art form. I mean, celluloid is really a canvas. And digital, I mean, transcribe the same, right? So you, we're playing with time, that element of time. Uh, we can create rhythms and the editing and, and movement. So, you know, one of the things that I love is dance films. Films that 
that incorporate choreography, the movement, especially uh, when it's contemporary dance. I've been doing a lot of work with the, I mean, people that I have met here in Miami that have are involved in the dance movement. One of the films that I work did in collaboration to a choreographer, Dale Andre, is called Flickering Glades. In that film, what I did, I put two cameras next to each other, but I mean, as close as I could next to each other, almost like doing a 3D kind of thing, right? And I shot still pictures with one camera on a timer. Every, I believe it was every one, every two seconds. And then with the other one, I shot video, just regular video. And then I just took, and by just um the images, uh, I create, um, by the way, I forgot to mention that the still camera was shooting long exposure uh, takes, so about two seconds exposures. So the dancers, when they were moving, they would um, create this fussiness or like a blur. But then the parts of their body that was um, not moving, it would register very well. And then mixing that with video on top of each other, it became a really art piece. Yeah, what I'm interested in is exploring the form of film as a medium. Claudio, you mentioned that there's there's other areas of surrealism and things that you want to explore. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I'd love to hear where you think you want to go with things. I've been fascinated by the, the way the camera works. And I feel that, of course, it emulates the eye, the camera. But I have a, there is a question that was asked to me when I was about 20 years old. And the question was, where does the image gets created? Where does the image happens when you're looking at something, right? And it is a very provoking question because the answer is really hard to actually to say. It's like uh, what art is. It's a hard definition. Recently, I discover something and I put it on a video blog that I have in my Vimeo channel. It hasn't yet been released, but uh, it will be. I'll tell you more about it later, perhaps. The image, 20 years after I thought of the answer, I revealed my age. I'm 49 now. Okay, so it's connected to the ego, to the self. That's image that I'm watching when I'm watching something, it only happens in the mind. Well, I don't want to say it only, only probably. Isn't. The mind interprets it. And, and and somebody told me that the brain and the eyes are connected in such a way that some people treat it as a one organ, which is kind of strange, you know, because we tend to divide. It's easily to divide. And we, I mean, it doesn't make much sense. But I, I think I get what they say. And um, I'm going to tell you an experience that I have when I used to live in El Portal. El Portal is uh, nearby, but those who don't know, near Miami Shores area. And it has a river. And the little river, it's, you know, full of manatees and it's a very special place. It was a very special place that I live. I did a camera obscura in my room. I blocked the light for every window, everything. Uh, even little lights coming from, you know, an AC charger or anything. And I made a little pinhole in the window. And then I used a digital camera with a long exposure to see what's being projected. And this is, I mean, some older artists have done it. I knew about it. But one thing is to know about it. And the other thing is to do it. If you do do it, and I encourage everyone who is listening to try this. I felt almost, yes, why not? I felt enlightened. When I left
left that room, my understanding of cameras have changed big time because I experienced it. And so, yeah, when we're talking about filmmaking, you know, you're just adding 24 frames per second. Um, the possibilities are endless. So going back to what you just said, so you basically made a large pinhole camera out of a room with a digital camera. Yeah, the digital camera was the witness. Okay. Um, the naked eye could not see the projection on the wall. Perhaps if I would have made the hole slightly bigger or used a lens, I would have been able to watch the image on the walls. One thing is that the image is backwards and it's happening in your eye as you're watching. There is an image that it is cast uh, projected to the retina and it's actually backwards. So your brain takes care of that to flip it do you believe you know it's one of those urban myths or folklore or maybe it's true that that the last image someone sees is like imprinted on their eyes before they die wow well i would love to do a whole hour about life <laughs> and death <laughs> I, I i this is a subject that i really like um i don't that's the answer it's an interesting concept movies I think it's harder to find a movie that doesn't like somehow talk about life and death. I mean, it seems to be everywhere, everything. I mean, it's it's a fact. Going to die, mm -hmm. pay taxes. So you bring up some things to really think about how we see the world through the naked eye, how we see the world through the camera, and um, you know, not everybody, even filmmakers, like not everybody gets that the idea that what you're watching in real life and how it's going to be on a camera are going to be different, and how to take those differences. Do you do you agree with that? I, I make an exercise where students take the same picture or composition of a person. Let's say uh, me medium shot right so from the waist up and and then they had to use different lenses for instance a wider angle and then a telephoto and it's a whole different look but it's the same composition you can achieve the same composition in the frame but the looks are so different and they realize that and they see they usually don't go back to the old habit which is uh, oh we need to a close-up zoom in no no do not zoom in think about your lens first and then move the camera where you want it it's what you have to do you know, you have to do it when, when you have prime lenses, if you want to get coverage and then, you know, there's benefits of both prime, prime and zoom lenses. But uh, going back to talking about like surrealism, avant-garde films, uh, there's the, you know, it's called show business for a reason, you know, and there's always going to be the, de the debate between film and cinema. You know, films for entertainment, films for art. COVID changed things, you know, with movie theaters. They're probably coming back on that. Is there still a place for art house cinema? Is there still a place for people to really use film to express their art? Yeah, in Miami especially, we have O Cinema. It's an art house space. And you, you can go and see films that usually won't be available in the traditional Circuit. Gables Art Cinema? No, Gables is one of them. Cora Gables Art Cinema is a fantastic place to watch interesting films. I watched two of my favorite films there, uh, Solaris by Andrei Tarkovsky. And then the same day I watched like, another Tarkovsky film, which is very long, which is And The Stalker. And back to back, long films. I mean, after that, I was in the clouds, you know, in another solar system. And the guy 
the filmmaker uh, is just astonishing how he really do poetry with the camera. You mentioned back when we were talking about your teaching approach to like watch watch film, especially you know for those that want to more avant garde, more surreal films. One like what are some films you may recommend? And when you do watch them, what should they pay attention to? What should they look for? I mean, obviously, you know, you want to watch everything, but should they pay attention to the camera movement, pay attention to, you know, the messing scene, like what's everything that's going on, the story, there's just so many components. You know, is there one area that that they should kind of focus on where they can really learn about how to take that approach? Well, I mean, certain films that have marked my style and have taught me things that uh, I apply on my narratives, you know, I think we all kind of uh, take from every film that we watch and we love something and we continue doing it. That's not a, a copy infringement. That's what we do. Every every filmmaker steals from every other yeah. filmmaker. They just, back to interpretation, they just get interpreted. And sometimes we call it an homenage to Maya Daring. And she was a filmmaker from the 40s and she would film with a bollocks camera, a small 16 millimeter camera. And she was completely on her own meaning out of the Hollywood system. And she was doing avant-garde uh, films and, and he, she actually did dance films. And one of them is called Maya Daring, Meshes of the Afternoon. And that's a film that you, sh you should watch if you're into these kind of films. It's a film to watch several times, I think, and experience it. And think about the 40s, you know, being shot in that time. The other film that I often mention is Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini. It's a film about a filmmaker that is trying to make a film and is going through hell because he is lacking inspiration. So in a way, it's a self-portrait of the director because he uses an alter ego, Marcelo Mastroianni, in the film. And he talks about his process of making films. And so it's, it's, it's a trip. It's a really an interesting film. What about some of the more modern ones that I, I guess are more like commercial, like I don't want to say commercial, more more popular cult movies, uh, things like, you know, Requiem for a Dream comes up, Donnie Darko. Uh, there was a film that I really loved. It came out when I was a student, Pie. Yeah, that was a very cool film. The other one, Afnowski, right? He's, Darren Aronofsky, yep. Yeah. And then Tree of Life. That's a beautiful film with very, you know, Hollywood actors. Yeah. And it's very avant-garde right. in a way. And that, that was the one that was filmed over like years. Was that the one where he filmed it over like 20 years and used the same actors in different ages? Not sure. Okay. But I remember watching it and really enjoying it. And it's a bit like a dream that I didn't write down. You remember the flavor but you don't remember the, the the actual narrative of the dream. So I feel a little bit like that with uh, Tree of Life. Paul Thomas Anderson, I love his films. I love Magnolia. I watch it many times. I like the way, you know, it's a film that either you lo love it or you hate it. The other film that is like that is by um, the same director that did Rushmore, Wes Anderson. Yeah, I like his films, especially... Life Aquatic. Right. I love that film. Yeah. Well, Bill Murray. Yeah, those are, they kind of check both boxes. They're commercially successful, critically acclaimed. But like you said, you know, they're a little avant-garde and surreal and, and make you think. David Lynch. 
Oh, yeah. A variety of interesting films, too. He's a painter. You know that? I did know that. He, he explores the uh, different medium. So we can uh, we can go on talking about great films, you know, and the ones we love, probably for a whole other podcast. But we're going to take a, another quick break, and then we'll be right back to wrap up. To our listeners, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and then head over to our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com forward slash shop where you can purchase cinema pathway gear including t-shirts hoodies stickers and more we'll be right back Welcome back to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I'm Howard Brand. We're talking today with Claudio Marcatulli. Well, we talked about a lot. We covered a lot. We covered inspirations. We've covered things you've done, processes, the meaning of life somewhere in there, surrealism. Yo, let's bring it into the present. What uh, what are you currently working on? Um, in the film world, I'm about to start editing a film that I recently shot with the same collaborator that I did Flickering Glades, Del and we shot it in the Everglades and it, it was it's a dance film and we actually shot deep in the Everglades soaking water boy I was thinking about alligators I was just gonna say that gators but I uh, the person who actually helped us uh, produce that film is a uh, Mikusuki um, Native American and she's amazing she's wonderful Betty Oxiola she she said, don't worry, don't worry, you'll be fine. They will actually get scared and leave because there were too many people. Yeah, they say that about every like vicious animal. Oh, they're more scared of you than you are of them. I'm like, okay. I mean, I respect all the living animals in the Everglades and I don't know. But I was thinking about it. And the other thing is not dropping the camera in the water. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. And it's like, oh, I don't want to drop this camera. We took the risk. The images are beautiful and I'm about to start editing with the director because it's a collaboration, the director of, uh, of the choreography. So I'll be directing the, the movie part mm -hmm. and she direct the choreography, but we work together and, uh, in the editing process. Because the editing process, as everyone knows, is the second time that you direct a film. So were the dancers in the water? Depending of the moment, we're sometimes deeper, like here in the legs and sometimes halfway. Wow. In the water, yeah. But the scene is so beautiful. I'm excited to see how that comes out. Yeah. And what comes after that for you? Okay, I'm writing. I'm writing a film which has to do with alligators too. <laughs> it, it actually is based on a, a real story. Uh, I don't know if you have heard about it, but there was a guy in Florida who was swimming in a lake and somebody was flying a drone and looking down from the drone and you see the alligator coming, 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 and he bites the person in the head. The guy survived. And uh, from there on, I'm taking the whole journey as a f uh, fantasy, you know, but it's slightly based on that because that actually happened. And so I'm writing a film about uh, existential stuff and... Uh, that's the next thing. I, I want to make it a feature film because my last, one of the last films that I work on is Zenu. And Zenu is a, a film, took me about two years to finish. I could have done easily a feature film with the investment, with the... And the resources, I could have done a feature, but but it, this story was told in 23 minutes. So I want to do a feature film now. 
Coming back to a question I asked you earlier, you could expand it a little bit. Is there anything you haven't done from an artist standpoint or an artistic standpoint that you want to do? Um, you know, is there a different, some of your art ideas, you know, um, I saw the one where like it was living art. I've seen it like, like it was either dancers or performers that actually were wearing pieces of art, working that. Like, where do you want to go from there? Each project will demand different techniques and elements. And sometimes I explore with new elements. I'm learning now to do iron soldering, which is something that I always wanted to do. And yeah, that's a new technique. And that would allow allowed me to do work in metal. I work with metal, but uh, not to the degree of uh, big sculptures in iron. Like how much time do you dedicate to building pieces of art? I mean, sure it's weeks, months, years? It could be months, could be years. I made a project that I think is a, an a artistic, is a performance, and it was done with a remote control sail plan that I built. That took me about two years to build in, in my time. So breaks. What I did is I flew from a big mountain called El Avila in Venezuela and we launched the airplane and I was riding as a passenger on a paragliding, which is like a hang gliding. And I was flying the airplane next to me and I had a camera on my helmet. In those days where video aid, mini DV was just starting to, to come out. And the whole experience is a very strange, very unique thing because you're flying, but at the same time you're flying remotely another object. So both, you know, your body's flying, you're flying remotely another object, which is a glider. And uh, it took about 35 40 minutes to get down to the golf course. And now thinking about it, I call it flying in flight. Thinking about it, that was a piece of art, uh, a performance that explores existential things. And that would be an element that is different, that I, I apply skills that I had before. So it's like a, learning a new craft. Are there places either physically local to the area or online where people can view your work? Yeah, definitely. Uh, my website is claudiomarcotulli.com. Marcotulli is spelled M-A-R-C-O-T-U-L-L-I. And Claudio is C-L-A-U-D-I-O. Claudiomarcotulli.com. Okay. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Instagram is Marcotulli and well, Facebook, you can add me as a friend, Claudio Marcotulli. And there is a musician in Italy that has the same name that I have. He's a guitar player, but that's not me. I have a studio in Little Haiti. It is, you know, anybody that wants to look at my art up close can come to Little Haiti on 59th Street and Northeast 2nd Avenue. In that corner, there is a studios or different artists that work there. And I have my studio there. You can knock the door, ring the bell, and I let you in. Is that open daily or on weekends? Depending on the time that the artists are working, but they do a lot of openings. Every, once a month, uh, we do an opening. So we have an, uh, the administrator of the place, uh, Ron, he invite people to come and I would like to invite all the listeners to come to my show at Laundromat Art Space. It's happening on January 21st. This is in Little Haiti, Miami, and it's going to be from 6 to 9 p.m. Laundromat Art Space is located at 185th Northeast 59th Street, Miami. It's going to be open for a month. So if you are listening to this podcast and it already passed the 17th, 
is going to be open until February 17. And you should check it out because I'm going to have the entire building to myself. So it's going to have a lot of uh, stuff that uh, can keep you moving. And you can find more information on your Instagram or website? Yeah, Instagram, I will be posting for sure. And yeah. Claudia, where can our listeners view your films? Well, the last film I work on, Zenu, it, it went into the international circuit for short films and visited different countries. I put it out. Right now it's open on Vimeo. And it's called Zenu, Z-E-N-U. And you probably if you search Zenu with my last name, it will appear. You can watch it there. It was produced by my dear wife, Roxana Barba, which I collaborate often with. So it was aired about three years ago. You can watch it in PBS stream. And you have to download the application for PBS and that's it. You look for my name, Claudio Marco Tulli, and you got it. And yeah, it's a version that is slightly censored um, for language and boobies. Nudity. Okay. What about your other, the, um, yeah, that, that sounded like an interesting one as well. Flickering Glades was part of an exhibition in the Everglades, the Aerie uh, Gallery down in Homestead. Uh, not Homestead, but the Everglades, near Homestead. Uh, right now, I will need to put it open, and I think it's a discussion that I need to have with uh, the collaborator that I work with. And But most likely, I will put it on, in Vimeo as well. And your Vimeo page, is that something you can find off your Instagram page? Or just go to Vimeo and type your name in? Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, last question. Do you have any advice for future artists and filmmakers? Do what you love. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And don't do it for other people. Do it for yourself. You are your best judge. And yeah, accept criticism, but don't let criticism get you down. I think the, the art that you can do from within your soul, yourself, you call it whatever, ego, that's going to be the best art. Great. This has been... Uh... It's been an awesome conversation. A lot to think about. A lot to, I think, ponder is is the right word. Great. Thank you. Lots to explore. As a filmmaker, it's definitely educated me, you know, a lot. Different approaches and a different way to look at the camera, different way to look through the camera. Um, so I definitely thank you for being here. I think our listeners will really appreciate this episode. You are welcome back on the show. Anytime you want to come back, we'd be happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, along with associate producer Victor Ferreira and executive producer Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website at www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send any comments, suggestions, or feedback for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we will continue to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. This is the Cinema Pathway podcast. We'll see you next time. Lights out. <laughs>